the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to season three. Oh my god. Of Don't push pause. Season three. I feel like I say this every time we have a monumental episode, but holy crap. Here we are. This is amazing. It's 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 pretty exciting. And I feel like we've we really uh, took some time in our break to kind of work out some of the movies that we're gonna be doing in the next like four or five months and I'm pretty excited about the movies that we're going to be doing and talking about. And I feel like everyone who, if you've been listening to us, you're going to be pleasantly surprised what's coming down the line. Oh yeah. We've got a lot of fun things and sorry. I actually, I just got wound up in thinking about the next movies that we were doing and, um, almost said something. I'm not yeah, going to no, ruin no. anything. No, it's not no. ruin anything, but we let's focus on <laughs> this first episode of season three. A special episode. Yeah, a special episode. We wanted to do something fun to kick off the season, so we thought we're, we're a big fan of themes here at the podcast, mm-hmm. and so we were trying to think of themes where we could pair two movies together to do a double feature. It'd been a little while since we've done a special episode yeah. like this. Yeah, and so uh, I suggested a babysitter theme and uh, I was like, you mean uh, Alicia Silverstone's The Babysitter? Yeah, perfect. That's what I want to. But talk more about. and more and more ones that people were, you yeah. know, had a love for. You know, it seems like the biggest babysitter centric films of '80s and '90s were Adventures in Babysitting for the '80s, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead for the '90s. So we thought we'd bookend this episode with those two. And these movies had come up in just in discussions with you and I before, and we talked about this, but this seemed like the best way to uh, talk about both of them together. And as this is a special episode, and we want to give both movies proper amounts of time to talk about them and discuss them, go behind the scenes, um, we're actually not going to do Picks of the Week this time around. We're going to do one discussion starting with Adventures in Babysitting, and we'll play a little clip before this discussion starts. And then discussion two, we'll start with a uh, clip from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and then we'll just do one discussion on that. And then uh, we still will round things out with our Murray moment, though. True. It is true. Let's see. Where should we even start with our discussions? We're not going to do this like a compare and contrast because both movies are so starkly different. But there are some things that I'm sure, you know, will come up that, um, you know, I mean, most obviously both movies have a very strong female lead that are the the main, uh, well, not necessarily the main babysitters, but the main stars of both of the movies. Um, But there'll be some some crossover, I'm sure. But enough, um, there's enough difference between the two movies. Yeah, and we'll talk about the the script to screen for these. There's a lot of cool little uh, behind-the-scenes stories. Both of these movies were directed by fairly renowned directors, so we'll go into a little bit about Chris Columbus for Adventures in Babysitting and then Stephen Herrick for Don't Tell Mom. And I'm sure we'll get into the development, also um, how these movies fared when they came out, because um, there's definitely a difference there. Um, some of the cast, of course, and you know how we felt about these movies when they came out versus now uh what what emotions that they evoke and and do they still hold up 
Well, let's kick it off. But before we uh, go to our clip for Adventures in Babysitting, uh, Lindsay, can you set up what this movie is about? I would love to. I know there's a lot in the title, but. Yeah, I would love to. There's a lot in both of these uh, titles for these movies. So Adventures in Babysitting kind of starts out after a disappointing potential date night. A suburban high school babysitter gets wrangled into looking after a brother-sister duo and their hormone-heavy friend. But when she takes the kids to the big bad city to rescue her stranded and terrified best friend, it's one ridiculous misstep after another as the night turns into a series of comically life-threatening adventures in this battle to get back home before mom and dad do. It's a pretty good summation. I, I, I went through this movie lining out all of the like point A to point B. Next yeah, there's thing. a lot of beats. There's, there are so many. There's a lot that happens in this movie. Well, let's go to the trailer here to Adventures in Babysitting, then we'll come back and talk about it. Meet Chris Parker. Getting ready for the greatest night of her life. Hi. I gotta cancel. Now she's stuck babysitting the Anderson kids. Sarah. Mom got Chris to babysit for me. Chris? Her brother Brad. Oh my... His best friend, Daryl. Who is this kid? Stray dog. Take good care of my baby. I'll guard her with my life. What could possibly go wrong? Chris, I'm in trouble. Hang up and sit down. I'll be there in half an hour. This is the night when things go from bad... My mom's car! ...to worse. Big city. Scum sucker. Too ridiculous. Wanna go to bed? Hey, I like danger. You should try babysitting. And this is only the beginning. The friend is dead. Chris can handle it. Sarah's probably hanging from the rafters by now. Sarah, hold on! I'm still in control here. <laughs> you could say they were having a bad night. Any problems? No, not really. If they weren't having such a good time. Adventures in babysitting. Would your parents will ever ask me to babysit again? If they do, I'd ask them for a buck more an hour. So there's so many shows and movies nowadays where teenagers are the main actors, but there is uh, enough in the in the material where, you know, grownups would want to sit through it. In the 80s, that wasn't so much a case. You know, there were movies that had teenagers that were pretty juvenile. There were kids shows or kids movies. And there was only a handful that really kind of stood out where I think they were geared toward kids, but an adult would have a good time watching them. I think Adventures in Babysitting was definitely one of those movies uh this came out in 1987 very much is like a kids adventure movie but there's enough content i think going on and there's enough intelligence where it doesn't feel like a throwaway like teenage comedy like the whole family could gather around and sit down and enjoy this movie aside from like a few things here and there kind of stands you know we always when you're watching a movie from the 80s you know we've said this numerous numerous times and in many many episodes where it's just like is this going to be a real cringy movie to sit through but this one there are a few unforgivable things but for the most part this kind of I feel like is is still uh you could watch this in a group today and 
it wouldn't be uh, groans from the audience. Yeah, I mean, as far as that goes, I I feel like those moments, it's just the homo line. There's a lot wrong with that, and I think even the writer totally regrets that part. But I, I think in and general... All, and all the villainous people in Chicago or African-American. Not all of the carjacker people. Not all of them. I mean, if anything, as far as race goes, I feel like this movie, instead of segregating, it was like showing races interacting and primarily just that's, white and I, black races. I will say I will say that's true, yeah. That's, um it was really only white and black. I don't think there's really any. Yeah, if other they would have went to the city of Chicago and it was like only white people down there, it would have been like, <laughs> wait a minute, this is weird. If if anything, it is kind of interesting noting that that there's not really even though there is a lot of cross culture in this movie, um it's not something that's um I you and I talked about this that sometimes it feels a little cringeworthy at times, but it's not something that's offensive necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, but it, and for me, it's more like personal things, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. Like the sort of like white people singing the blues. So getting back to like kind of the, the audience or the feel of this movie, that Adventures in Babysitting is very much a general type audience. I don't feel like it is targeting a... I mean, definitely a younger demographic, sure, because it stars kids, but parents, kids, and it's very non-gendered. I don't think that even by having babysitting in in the title, I think you might think it, you know, angles more towards a female persuasion, but it it doesn't really. I feel like it's pretty equal on on that. Yeah. Yeah, just very general across the board. When this is a movie, too, I think that delivers in its title. I mean, if you're putting adventure in the title of your film, <laughs> better be you, a damn adventure, you, man. <laughs> you really need to have you really need something to happen. I do like the format of this movie, which was something that a lot of movies did in the sort of like mid to late 70s uh, where, you know, something all takes place in, in one day or one evening. Those movies usually consisted of a group of characters, you know, like Car Wash or American Graffiti, mm-hmm. where, the, you know, it kind of cut back and forth between all these different characters, like, throughout their day. And then in the 80s, it sort of became more of a, a movie took place in one day or one evening, but it was like, a, you know, we stayed with the central characters. We didn't kind of jump around a bit. Very much like after Martin Scorsese's After Hours, uh, this movie is sort of like, to me, like... Uh, and a less heightened kid version of After Hours where, you know, you have a series of events that happen almost in, in, in like a video game where it's just like mm-hmm. A, B, C, D. Once they overcome this as- obstacle, another obstacle happens. But ultimately, they have this end goal that they need to get to where they need to save somebody. They need to help out a friend or they need to find a lost wallet or something that's, <laughs> you know, yeah. some some sort of like thing that's set in the beginning. Like this is what we need to achieve. Yeah. But we, we you know, there's always these problems that keep happening that are jumping up in front of us. It is like following a map in some ways, and it feels formulaic in, in in those ways, in the most basic way that you can say formulaic. But the creativity that is within that, I think, is what makes this movie stand out. It is not boring. Maybe there's like a part or two that lags, but it's not it's not a boring movie. I can legit say I remember like first watching this, and even now, because there's so much that happens in it, there sometimes I'm like, wait, what happens next? Oh yeah, that's that part where they like go on this like wacky thing, or they end up in the bowels of Chicago. There, there's so much that happens that sometimes you even forget about a certain part. Another thing, you know, because you're saying that this is 
this is formulaic in a way that you know there's these certain parameters point a to point point a to point b road trip movies did this a lot too where you know there's certain things where they got to hit you know they got to stop at the gas station and there's the wacky gas station guy (laughs) yeah and what this movie does it because it kind of has those same beats but what i do love about this movie is that much like those movies where they would have, like I said, the wacky gas station attendant or the hitchhiker that they pick up, those movies, usually those side characters, the interactions that the main characters deal with are very cartoony or they're very over the top. This movie, I feel like it dials it in pretty good. I mean, it's very restrained. It's like, you know, they they meet up with a, a car thief, not a mob boss, but like a, like a car ring car boss. Car theft ring, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Every, uh, the uh, guy you know the uh, the guy that drives a tow truck there's when when they have these small scenes with these characters the characters seem very human and genuine mm-hmm. they don't seem these like over the top like burr, 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 you know like <laughs> what would i feel like a lot of movies do yeah. where it that can grow kind of tiring because your main characters are humanized and seem very real but then all the people that they interact interact with seem like cartoon characters and usually something like that is done to make you identify with the main characters to be able to follow them on, on their journey. What happens in all of these different vignettes is that, you know, when, okay, so the kids happen to get carjacked at the wrong moment or they get into a car to hide out from this violent thing that's going on and they happen to get into a car that's being stolen at that time. And then, you know, then that takes them to the, to the next point. All of the things, as wacky and unbelievable as they all are, it all makes sense within the reality of this awful, unfortunate night that that they just keep seeming to have. There's nothing that happens that you're like, okay, well that that that's the part that doesn't work in here. It's like, no, actually, if we're if we're working within this world where nothing is working out for this babysitter and she is just having the worst night and needs to retire after this day. It all makes sense to me. And speaking of that babysitter, should we move on to the cast? Yeah, I think you have a good spread here of characters. You know, we've got Elizabeth Shue is the main lead character, is the babysitter. We have Anthony Rapp, who plays the uh, best friend, next-door neighbor, who is the friend of... Keith Coogan. Keith Coogan, who plays the the older brother, and then... Who has kind of a crush on Elizabeth Shue, the yeah. babysitter character. And uh, Maya Bruton is is the younger sister who has a obsession or a love admiration for DC Comics, Marvel. Marvel for Ooh, you're about to get I a know. lot of uh, actually is out there. <laughs> I wasn't a comic book kid. Sorry. There was just a guy that walked down the stairs like uh, he just like wandered in like. Uh, did did um, you just actually, say DC Comics for Marvel? Um, I'm gonna go ahead and fit in on this, on this podcast now. Um, you're but, good, Ralph. Yeah, for the younger sister, wildly having a, a obsession with Thor, which at the time I think they were trying to get uh, Spider Man or like a, there, a there fa- were a few. They were trying to get yeah. a fairly known. Uh, yeah. Now Thor is like wildly known, well, but at the time it, they were that the. I think it was like Marvel said, we'll give you like a lesser known, we'll give you the rights to use. Because they they used him a little bit and they were just kind of like, go ahead and do whatever you want with with Thor. But I think it's a really clever move yeah. because you have, you know, you don't have the young sister being into Barbie dolls Barbies, and stuff. Yeah. And, and she's, you know, the her brother's a little effeminate. So it's like, it's I think it's like a nice contrast. 
Isn't it funny? Like, uh, I mean, just if we're looking at like gender role type of thing, the the brother is, or I mean, she's more of of a tomboy, and you know, you've got the the older brother that's like kind of lovelorn and you know, googly eyed over the hot babysitter, who is really cool. And this movie, man, this movie rides on Elizabeth Shue's shoulders, and she was certainly not a stranger to movies. This wasn't like wasn't her first rodeo but if if this didn't have such a solid dependable person um to head this movie um i could see it not not doing the best actually yeah i think you really have to care about her and you have to also believe that she truly cares about these kids and that's something that i think throughout the movie there you know we see that relationship develop even more. We see that, you know, she's well aware that, you know, I need to focus. I need to stay in charge. <laughs> Some and, of the funniest moments are when she has, has those, uh, those times. And this is a movie I think that kind of works into, uh, that idea of like, you know, if I was in the situation, you know, we all have, uh, moments where, you know, we're responsible for, you know, whether it be kids or pets or our nieces or nephews mm-hmm. or whoever. You feel like everything's going wrong. Yeah. And, you, you know, and you get into a car with them and you're driving somewhere and, you're, and, you know, you just think like if this, you know, if I got a flat tire by myself, it's just like, OK, this wouldn't, you know, be the worst thing in the world. But if I had a couple of kids with me and, you know, it's the middle of the night and we're in the city, it's just like, OK, well, this co- totally changes the it's landscape of the situation. Yeah. Getting a flat without a spare on the expressway in Chicago and you're seven. You're the oldest person is 17. And uh, you don't have a cell phone. Yeah. You know, no so that's, cell that's, that's that's the big thing with this movie. <laughs> uh, again, a movie no that uh, would only be five minutes long if cell phones existed in Adventures in Babysitting. But. Oh, you know, a little funny tidbit I found out. Um, so as as we said, the Keith Coogan character of Brad has has a crush on Chris, the babysitter. And it's, you know, kind of like a subplot throughout the whole movie. Fun fact is that, I mean, who wouldn't have a, a crush on Elizabeth Shue? But he really did try to, like, ask her out on a date. And when he does that in the movie, he said that that is exactly what she did to him in real life. The laugh that she did, he was like, and it just, like, shattered me. But when you do see towards the end of the movie when he finally kind of relents on his crush, the possessiveness, because it's not necessarily like a happy thing. He's just like, well, I'm not going to get the girl. Um, Keith Coogan said that that was actually how he felt. But I think it's good that they uh, that they showed a realistic mm-hmm. version of how that would go down. They didn't go the uh, oh, Hollywood route it. of or or him getting her, you know, at yeah. the end. Which be weird. Yeah, would be weird, you know, but <laughs> but I think that as much as this does have like a kind of like a sappy Hollywood ending, um, I do like that they play his, their relationship, you know, his being kind of infatuated yeah. with her and but her also seeing that, you know, that he actually cares for her in a way that like kind of these jerk guys, you know, kind of seeing like if some him. of these yeah. jerks had a little bit of the respect that he had toward her. No, I totally agree. She is respectful of him, and I and I think even the the Anthony Rapp character, um, you know, starts off as a oversexed little kid that shows up with his dad's Playboy and has a model in there that looks a lot like the babysitter. Even he, his character grows towards the end. I mean, a little bit. I wouldn't say that these characters by the end of the film, you know, become more enlightened or there's like a a, a bigger idea behind it. But I do think that there is some sort of growth by by the end of of this whole adventure. Anthony Rapp in this to me 
uh, as annoying as he is to me, he's like the most realistic character yeah. of people that I knew when I was 14 or 15 in the scene where they first, where the tire blows out and everyone's Oof. all freaked out and he's just like laughing, laughing. his head off. I want to so, punch him straight but, in the but, face. But his reaction to that scene is like so realistic to, yes. to like 15 year old boys. What a kid would do. Yes. Yeah. Every time he, his, his uh, catchphrase in the movie is you think? Every time he says it, I want to strangle him so hard, I can't even tell you. But it's because he's a 15-year-old boy, yeah. and they're kind of awful. <laughs> so outside the cast, I want to make mention, this is a movie that certainly lo- certainly uses its location to its advantage. Uh, because this movie is so wildly seen as a Chicago movie, you know, it's like the city of Chicago is like on the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've we talked about this off mic. It almost sometimes I've mistaken it for a John Hughes movie because you know of all the other reasons with teenagers and adult themes, but the city of Chicago really getting a lot of love. And uh, especially every time I go, I'm driving down Lakeshore Drive when I visit Chicago, seeing the the black building with the glass that slants down that the girls like scaling down. I'm always like, oh, it's the Adventures and Babysitting Building. (laughs) The Crane Communications Building. It's also called the Vagina Building by a a lot of people in Chicago. (laughs) Um, And also a fun fact too about this movie is that a lot of it was filmed in Toronto. And in order to match weather, because there was a little bit more snow, if you can believe that, than in a, actually, yeah, I can believe that in Toronto than Chicago. They had to melt a lot of the snow to match what the sets would look like in Chicago. Um, but yeah, filmed in Chicago and Toronto, even though it looks like it's all Chicago. No, I would I would have never known. I know it, so many movies shot in Toronto too. <laughs> Canada, that are, that double art Canada double for so, Chicago or New York. So many, and there's a lot of. Chicago blues that's inserted into here and that was that was um directly from Chris Columbus that wasn't necessarily directly from the screenwriter David Simpkins but Chris Columbus was super adamant about adding that in adding the music aspect and it is like throughout the the soundtrack to what happens I mean when the kids go into the blues bar you can't leave without singing the blues that whole scene that was not David Simpkins that was straight up Chris Columbus that said, I don't care how you do it, dude, make this scene happen. And that is probably one of the more memorable scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And just to talk a little bit about Chris Columbus, this was his directorial debut, but he'd already really kind of become a well-known writer in Hollywood, writing The Goonies and uh, Gremlins to you know huge box office hits that are really well-known today. Yeah. But a uh, pretty huge you know, film debut by a director. And then, I mean, the guys just had like an enormously successful career uh, with hits like Home Alone, <sighs> Mrs. Doubtfire, if you like that movie, um, you know, Stepmom. You know, oh, I like did, Stepmom. Did several. I, I'm a I'm a big Stepmom fan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, did, did, you know, had a wildly successful career. He did a couple of the Harry Potter movies. You know, he he chose to do Adventures in Babysitting as as his directorial debut because it seemed small enough scale, which to me, this movie doesn't really seem, it seems like a lot of production work and a lot of moving parts and that he thought that this was small enough scale. I guess because when you're coming off of like, bigger product like Goonies yeah, or when you, like when you've spent uh, <laughs> the first part of your career working with Steven Spielberg this probably seemed like a low budget movie like so this is like an indie flick right yeah <laughs> um do you have anything else you want did you want to talk about the writer for a minute or 
I mean, other other than um, it really seemed like this was a work of of passion. There wasn't it wasn't an idea that was really fleshed out a lot. There was a general idea, and it was kind of written fast. And it wasn't necessarily perfect, but the idea was there. And I think a lot of love really went behind this. Once Deborah Hill and Linda Obst uh, were kind of like shopping it around, that um, it just kind of, everything just kind of fell into place. And it seemed like if it weren't for the love of the script and appreciation for that, that it really wouldn't have, have gone necessarily anywhere. And there were a lot of casting choices before people, you know, before we've settled on who we have in the movie. Phoebe Cates. Did you read that? Phoebe Cates was uh, up for Elizabeth Shue's part. You know, I, that, I mean, I could see her and I could see her as the main lead. I don't hate anything with Phoebe Cates in it, but Elizabeth Shue really does nail this. But there were a lot of people, too, that um, Paramount was considering just because they had deals um, with, you know, with already like, like I think Bette Midler was someone just because they had like a picture deal with her share. It's like these, these would have been, those are wacky too many yeah. reworkings for the script. Um, but, um, just, just the way that this, uh, kind of all came together seemed to be really a work of love in this movie. Uh, you know, it was like a modest hit. It wasn't like a huge success, um, but it was a movie, much like many movies, gained a huge following when they hit VHS. Mm-hmm. And I will give it to this movie. One of I, I love the poster to this. I think it's like so an good. iconically, <laughs> yeah. you know, back when they like really put some love into some posters. Back, back when <laughs> it wasn't just a of of a Photoshop gigantic <laughs> picture of the actor's face with their name. Back when they like did hand painted posters of yeah. the characters, and it was like. This, I mean, it's just such a great poster of them, like, hanging on the side of the building and the little so girl cool. with her Thor hat has got her arms around the neck of, you know, they're hanging on the rope. And it's just, it's got a very, like, Indiana Jones, that I almost feel like they were kind of borrowing from oh, yeah, that aesthetic sure. a little bit, like many movies did, you know, for, <laughs> yeah. for their, for their uh, movie posters. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was, did okay at the box office, but I think, like, became, you know, wildly seen on cable and VHS and whenever we do an episode we always ask people you know we're casually talking like oh we're about to record this movie or this movie and I'm always surprised if people are going to say like oh I I, you know I love that movie but this is definitely one that garnered a lot of uh, uh, fanfare where people you know were like oh yeah I grew up on this and then for myself this is one that I saw many many times on television I mean I think it still holds up I think it's a movie that uh, wouldn't bore modern kids today. Um, quick couple shout outs to uh, some faces you might be familiar with. There's uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who's Thor, who has a small part in this. Um, I always liked Penelope Ann Miller growing up. Um, and then Bradley Whitford, who's certainly gone on to have a much bigger career than the part that he does in, in this movie. He plays Chris the babysitter's jerk of a boyfriend that in the beginning stands her up for the date that she's really excited about and getting ready for. And uh, he he was concerned, because this was kind of at the beginning of his, his career, that he kept getting these parts of like the a-holes, you know, in every movie. And I mean, not to be whatever, but Bradley Whitford, you looked like one in the 80s, dude. You did. You look like you did. He still kind of plays like a-hole characters, yeah. <laughs> You're good at it. I mean, good for you, man. 
Um, but he was kind of worried that this was going to pigeonhole him at the time. And I think he said something to his agent and he, and he was like, am I just going to get these parts for the rest of my life? Like, is this going to damage my career? And his agent responded, dude, you don't have a career. So take what you're going to get. And he's made a bigger career out yeah, of it now. Yeah. Like, good for you, man. So let's shift on into the 90s. We'll uh, close it up there on Adventures in Babysitting. Only three years ahead, really. Yeah. Not not too much not too much time, but I feel like the, the, the vibe, the tone, and the look of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is so much different. You know, kind of, I, I think it did a really good job, even though it came out in 91, of like kind of shedding the 80s off of it and mm-hmm. really... Uh, kind of trying to gain its own look and gain its own momentum for an early 90s film. But can you give us, uh, before we go to a clip here, can you give us a summary of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead? There's so much in that title. It's such a long <laughs> and you know descriptive title. There's even a story behind the title. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I, and I love that title. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, so after... 37 years and five kids mom finally needs an Australian vacation but she can't leave her kids to fend for themselves right so a crotchety babysitter comes to ruin the summer party plans for all the Crandall kids but when the old lady drops dead really early in the film um, the kids are left to fend for themselves leaving the oldest sister to fake a resume enter the fashion world and get in way over her head but maybe you know Maybe all of these kids are going to turn into mini adults before mom gets home. That's what I would say if you're going to boil this down. There are far less working parts than Adventures in Babysitting. This is very much a straightforward movie. And I would say the angst is kicked up way more, yeah. <laughs> way more than Adventures in Babysitting. I like the description that's been described as like a working girl for the teen, you know, worked for into teens, like yeah. a teen movie. Yeah. Well, we'll go to the trailer for Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and we'll be back. We'll get into that one. When's your mom leaving for Australia? Oh, in about an hour and a half. She's leaving you guys all alone. I'm getting rid of her for two whole months. I can go to the beach. I can stay out as late as I want. I can do anything. I'm a free woman. Hi. Hello, dear. I'm a steward. I'm a babysitter. What? All right, you little maggots, now line up. Are you serious? I'll make your summer a living hell. Oh, hey! TV rocks your brain. It's time we let her know the rules. Yeah, we outnumber her. Let's kick some butt. This is Sturak. Mr. Sturak? Oh, my God. She died in her sleep. She'll probably blame us. Hey, be careful. I got her. No, I mean my skateboard. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Rock and roll! Now, Christina Applegate and her brother... What? ...bounce back for a summer with... How's my baby? No rules. In your dreams, babe. No curfews. No nagging. No pulse. Oh, how you doing, mom? No, Mrs. Durack's not here. She, um, she went to the yarn store. So, what do you guys want for breakfast? Cheese omelet. SpaghettiOs. Breakfast is served. Mow the lawn today, and don't forget to do the dishes, okay? Ah! Dishes are done, man. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. 
So now that we get to 1991's Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, a lot of the themes in this movie are the same, but the the distinct thing about this movie that I really love is that um, it has a very kind of like hip feel to it. Like this, this is a movie that to me, when I used to watch Adventures in Babysitting, I liked it. I obviously identified because it's like, oh, there's kids in this movie. But when yeah. this movie came out, it was more specifically identifying to like a teenager a generation, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. And really did capture that sort of like early nineties, like feel like the music in this was hip, you know, it was like kind of a little new wave-ish. And Christina Applegate was like 18 when she did this movie. So, you know, you also have someone who is playing their age, playing their age yeah. which didn't really happen all the time in, in 80s movies, you know, mm-hmm. and really not in the 90s, like take for <laughs> no, no, 210, for example. <laughs> but, you know, this movie feels dated in the fact that it is super 90s, but it still, to me has this sort of like young rebellious feel to it that's very alive on screen. Yeah, the spirit of it still is strong. Regardless, I mean, just like with any movie that we're talking about, it's going to be dated no matter if it's fashion or hair or whatever it is. But it's still, I I can watch this movie and still not feel uh, disconnected to it just based on the aesthetic. And of of these two babysitter movies, I feel like this one... I, I can identify more with and it's it's the more entertaining movie like the content is more entertaining and you know we don't want to do a total compare and contrast here but like there is something that is starkly different about this one compared to adventures in babysitting like this one I feel like appeals a little bit d- differently to you as an adult watching it as an as a kid like I I love this movie growing up and watching it as an adult too it is much more like how I feel watching Working Girl, you know? Yeah. And, and of course, the writers had that in mind, had that movie in mind, had like, um, this is much better than The Secret of My Success, that movie with Michael J. Fox, but um, that that spirit too and, and Risky Business, that Tom Cruise movie. Like there's a, a lot of inspiration for this movie and a lot of things that I feel like no matter if you are a teenager or if you're an adult one reason this movie works is because there are very identifiable things that we go through as a child and then also trying to uh, there are many identifiable things that we go through as a kid but then also an adult and I feel like even as an adult sometimes you can feel like you're posing like you're not you're you're faking it till you make it and that that's why I think this movie still works no matter how old you are well, not yet. Well, yeah, because I think it's even if, you know, you're starting a new job. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. you kind of a lot of times got to fake it till you make it and it's awkward. The smart thing about this whole movie and the script is that idea of like the parents are away and, you know, kind of kicking, setting it off is like, oh, we're going to party. We're going to like mm-hmm. do all this stuff. And then just what you expect. Right. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. the idea that she really does take on not just adult responsibilities, but like goes to a job that, you know, imposes as an adult. And I, cause I, cause I almost feel like you get two movies in one because 
you get the you get the home alone vibe atmosphere you know when she's home with her siblings Christina Applegate though. Christina Applegate yeah. yeah but there's all this workplace stuff in the movie that to me where it's like you get this bonus movie and there that to me that's like a lot of the the best parts of the movie are when she's sort of posing as an adult working you know trying to, like you said fake it till you make it in yeah. this design industry if you were an adult trying to impress somebody you'd kind of freak freak out but like I do like that they also play her as a teenager dealing with situations Mm -hmm. trying to act like an adult and it feels genuine to me again this is a movie that I that I like that doesn't take things into a cartoonish level when you were talking I was thinking about how the movie big does that where you know there's there's this body swap where it's a kid in in an adult's body and he's very much behaving like a child as an adult this is Sue Ellen's really trying like she's she's still herself she is still the same person at home and she's not only the oldest kid but she's kind of assuming the mom role and I wouldn't even say babysitter like she's become the mom and it in the work atmosphere she's kind of triaging she's trying to figure out how am I gonna I have no idea what I'm doing but I know that I've got to get this done and this done and I'm gonna delegate right and this is where I think it really greatly differs from Working Girls that Sue Ellen's boss, Rose Lindsay, is very positive. And their relationship is so cool and also something that we didn't see a lot at this time where we have two strong females that are working together. And uh, like Working Girl, it is not at all like that. That's where the animosity comes in, actually. And this this relationship is so cool and their friendship is actually like it's uplifting. and. This movie could have um, where there is a lot of angst and there is a lot of like 90s kind of like rebellion. There is a hardcore like a positive backbone of positivity, I think, in this movie. Yeah, I think it was something that was like really refreshing for cinema. It's easy to forget what what the state of cinema was in like late 80s, early 90s, where you have a female lead in two females that have like a like a positive relationship on screen um because this movie also sidesteps you know generally in in movies in this time period you'd have two females pitted against each other mm-hmm. and you know and that, Sue Ellen does have an arch nemesis but, but it's like a it's like a subplot but what's yeah. great about it is is that even though she does Sue Ellen Christina Applegate's character never really sees her as like an an adversary. You know, she's just like, I don't know. She just has it out for me, but they're not, they're not battling it out with each other. It's just like one person kind of like mad that, that she got her job, but they, and that, you know, cause in another movie, I feel like they'd be going head to head, you know, and that would be like the big, that's a really good point. So it's like, so I think it's, it's, it's nice. It sidesteps. That's what is great about this movie is it, it did promote like a positive atmosphere. And it also too, uh, what I appreciate about the script is that there isn't this sort of middle part of the movie where, you know, she's like almost found out or anything. It's like, it it kind of like (laughs) unwinds at the very end and in the climax, but there's not this like middle part that's sort of meandering. I mean, this movie to me is like pretty tight. The only thing that I would say that like is off-putting to me yeah. Uh, in a rewatch of this movie is like kind of how mean-spirited the kids are. Uh, Man, and how and how mean they are, and how like ungrateful they are. <laughs> and I know th- I know that it's sort of a setup toward the end, but I but it I would is. say like it was almost a, like if they went a notch further with them being like ungrateful, spoiled brats, it would be like too much to take for me. Mm-hmm. 
it's funny you saying that because while I do agree with it, one thing that I, I have noticed every time in watching this, whether it's at the beginning and the kids coming together over their, look, this babysitter cannot get away with treating us like shit. Like we're going to, we're going to form together and we're going to tell her we're not going to take this. Whether it is family bonding over that or it's family bonding saying, look, maybe this isn't the best decision in the world by leaving our dead babysitter on the doorstep of a mortuary, but we don't want mom to come home. So let's make this work no matter how it is. They come together again. And yes, they have all of these terrible, bratty, stealing money moments that are positively like every time I've seen this movie a billion times, every time the entertainment center thing, I'm just like, and Sue Ellen's like, you've spent $3,000. Like, I want to barf. <laughs> it's so anxiety provoking. But then the coming together at the end and how they are all loving siblings, that is another thing that we don't really see in in movies. Like, they have these bratty moments, but there are multiple times where they come together. Yeah. And another thing, too, is that they all love their mom. The only thing that's like, ever crappy that comes up is a half mention of we don't want to call dad dad doesn't care like there is this not weird but like the only negative thing is said about a character that we don't see and we know that dad is not a factor in their life but they yeah. have a loving base of a family and it's not necessarily something that you saw all the time in a pg-13 movie there's very little time set up setting up the family but mm -hmm. it's enough to give you like you know a relatable glimpse into like single parent family and and also like a single parent family with multiple you know kids not just like one or two yeah um i wanted to talk a little bit about the the script here because there was uh quite a few changes that were required of the screenwriters from the studio um this was their first screenplay and the studio offered a lot of notes and I know we do a lot of research from behind the scenes stuff. And, you know, a lot of times you find out about the studio interfering with a writer's vision or a director's vision upon kind of reading some of the behind the scenes with the writers of the film, the studio really offered a lot of notes. They wanted them to make a lot of changes. And I got to say every single thing that the studio wanted them to change that's in the movie, I think is like for the better and it's kind of wild thinking that, but I mean, maybe it was because it was their first film. The studio was like, you know, hey, we've seen a billion scripts. We've seen how <laughs> things work on yeah. screen and we can tell you. And, and for starters, the very first thing uh, to kick off the movie that the studio wanted them to change, which the writers were very adamant about. They wanted the babysitter to be super nice. Um, that was their thing. And they said everybody but yeah. them was like, no, no, no. You need to make the babysitter like this, like over the top just heinous character because yeah. that way yeah. the audience isn't like hanging on it. Like, wait, they just, the, this nice woman died <laughs> and then they just like dropped her off. It's like, <laughs> I can't get on board with these kids, no. you know? And so, and I think that's totally true. I mean, I feel like if she was this like very sweet old lady, you know, and no, no one wants to see yeah, that. It would go into like morose territory. But one of the other, uh, I think big changes was the studio really wanted them to identify the place that Sue Ellen was going to get the job at. 
and really make that be a bigger part of the movie, which the original script was more about her being at home with the kids in the the place that Sue Ellen worked was very nondescript. That was like changed to like build up like what she did and make the interaction smarter, make Sue Ellen's character smarter, especially with the petty cash. They wanted that to be more her to be smarter about it, like shifting the party that they were going to throw to their house to kind of compensate for um, her spending the petty cash, which she would have gotten fired for. Yeah, yeah. I really think that's great because to me, those are all the things that make her, you know, you're kind of rooting for her and you're like, oh man, she's really handling this really well. It's like you get excited watching the movie because, you know, she hands off these reports to a woman that wants help. She's like, oh yeah, go ahead and do that. And she's managing these things. And then at the end, I do like it that instead of getting busted out for it, she's kind of rewarded like, oh good. It's good that you, uh, you know, <laughs> delegating. You're, you're, you're delegating, you know, yeah. and to me, it's it makes the movie flow and it makes you stay into it. And it, you're more invested because this world that she works in makes it a little more interesting. You kind of know what's going on. I think that if it was all like nondescript and she just worked at like this like kind of bland company and they were like saying stuff that you didn't, you know, just jargon that you didn't know would be. I don't know. I don't think I would have cared much about the, the character or like the s- situations that she was in. No, not necessarily. And I feel like the writers wanted there to be more about the workplace in this movie and the studio also wanted there to be more kid aspect of this and there it feels like to me that there's a good even balance between Sue Ellen and what she's dealing with at home kind of playing this mom role and then being the you know go to go to work nine to five lady and both of the writers Neil Landau and Tara Eisen they seem to come at this um, with, uh, like we were saying, there's so many rewrites um, that they weren't necessarily overwhelmed. They'd sit down, one would write some and then be like, I don't even know where to go after this, your turn, and t- kind of like tap in and tap out. And, you know, eventually we have what we see on screen and I, I feel like that they wanted it to be a little bit more highbrow, I think, than what it ended up being. But I don't think that that's saying that they're unhappy with how, how it ended up. But I think that they also needed another, um, needed to maybe be taken down a notch and be like, look, we don't need to take it like that seriously as much as you're wanting it to be. Yeah. And and this is not a knock on the writers. I think like no, well, ultimately like working with a studio and like fashioning, you know, like taking notes and like bouncing back and forth and doing rewrites. Uh, you know, they've fashioned this like very unique for a teen comedy. This movie's like so much more intelligent involved. And I know, like, like you said, I know, like yeah. in interviews, the writers had said with a campaign and stuff like that with the movie, the, you know, they were the studio was trying to sell it as like a they were trying to sell the comedy, the goofy aspect of it. The and, kid aspect. Yeah. And, and rightly so. That's what sells tickets. Another big thing, too, that was changed was the original title of this movie before the MTV series was called The Real World. And it was called that for quite a long time until they started testing this with, uh, I think their focus groups were, you know, 12, 13-year-olds. And they had a list of over 100 potential titles. And Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead was the one that won out and... The writers were not stoked about it and they were already like kind of concerned about and this is not like saying anything negative but but um Steve Herrick that directed this movie also did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and I think when he came on board they were concerned that it was going to get dumbed down a little bit or that the 
strength of the main character and just the the love that they put into the story was just going to get just going to get kind of taken down and I I don't think that it did personally and so this was kind of like insult to injury in some ways by giving it this title and they were so adamant against it and then um it wasn't until much much later that kind of came around to thinking okay actually this title is super memorable it's gonna stick out and I mean I think uh, even if you haven't seen this movie you've probably heard this title before and it is something that sticks out and it is totally silly but I think that um it it only adds to um the intrigue I think of this movie in general I mean I I, it's normally I'm not a fan of like long titles (laughs) and usually if you if you had a more long nonsensical title it comes off pretentious but Mm -hmm. god this is such a a title that works. I mean, specifically if you've seen the movie, but just like not knowing what it is, like don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Yeah. It's like so insanely long. Um, but gosh, it really works yeah. you know, so well. When I heard Neil Landau talking about it, he, the way, that, the way that he was talking about it, he was so frustrated and he's like, there's two apostrophes in this. Like, how are people even going to search this out? And it's, I get what he's saying. Like it, yes, it <laughs> makes total sense. But at the end of the day, it's catchy. And it, it's something that's yeah. totally memorable about it. Well, uh, let's briefly talk about the cast real quick before we uh, kind of close things out on these babysitter movies. Christina Applegate, you know, had already been on Married Will Children for multiple years, was kind of like a breakout, yeah, you know, character on that show and had a following and I think was like an absolute perfect pick for, for this role. I mean, to me, she is able to harness the that adult side that intelligence that sort of elegance that she puts off when people at her new job yeah but then also has the sort of like sulky uh coolness that you see in you know teen movies where mm-hmm. you're like oh i wish i could be that person or you know be that cool or like not care about this or whatever it, but also has that dramatic side to her as well when we have this like love interest in the movie and she's talking about her future it doesn't play lame three minutes of the movie where you kind of tap out you're like no this seems like real teenager talk and she's she seems authentic and genuine and i don't know there's a lot going on with her character she has to play like three or four different roles in this, I think, calibrate to what the scene is and really effective job. Of course, she's still today, like, you know, getting great roles and, yeah, you know, on a great hit show right now as well. And so many people over the years have always really spoken highly of her. This movie included, it, it seems like she really brought her A game to this and was incredibly nervous, but didn't really show that to anybody. But pretty much everybody... Uh, that was involved with this movie was just really impressed with her level of professionalism, especially for someone as young as she was. And I mean, but she'd also been on Married with Children. So it's like the woman was used to staying on a schedule. But but doing this, I can't imagine being her age and you are the focus. And, you know, like Elizabeth Shue, but she had also done films plenty of films before um, before Adventures in Babysitting like this movie relied on Christina Applegate like carrying it someone being able to play a teenager but then looking like an adult yet a teenager wearing you know this big pantsuit and and shoulder pads but still passing in an adult world like that's a lot that's a lot to work through and not be some type of just you know 
a movie that you can brush off and forget about. To be 18, and like you said, this movie's about you, that you're the main star of this. For young actors, there may be some like arrogance that comes with that, yeah. or like, yeah. but interviews with Christina Applegate, I mean, she said, like, you know, when she did this movie, she was just like, I was like, just trying to do a good performance. Like, I showed up on time. She was like, there were production assistants that, that were there four hours earlier than me, and like, no one person is more important than anyone else on set. Anytime I read that about an actor, like, that you know it's they like acknowledge acknowledge yeah. other people's hard work you know respect other people on the set i'm here to be professional and respectful and then give the best performance that makes this movie work and just her reading that you know i was just like yeah i can see you know those are the actors that, that work late in their careers because people want to work with you know people want to work with people who are res- respectful and show up and are also extremely talented so obviously we love Christine Applegate. Yes. Um, uh, another favorite of mine, uh, there's so many people in this to talk about, but Joanna Cassidy, who plays her boss, Rose Lindsay, is probably like my my second favorite. She's just so overwhelmingly positive and just glowing the whole movie. But their relationship, like I already said, is uh, one of my favorite things about it. And that Joanna Cassidy had been around for a while, she really tried to help ease any nerves that Christina Applegate had, uh, but they, you know, had had more than a few bonding moments during the movie. But you know, just like everybody else, was just really Im- impressed with uh, Applegate's level of professionalism. And all of the kids in this movie, um, we already talked about uh, Keith Coogan, who was in Adventures in Babysitting. He plays the stoner brother. Um, and it, I, until <laughs> we started, I started watching these when we were getting ready for the episode a couple weeks ago um i had forgotten like oh he's the brother in both mm-hmm. of these movies mm-hmm. you know. Fun- Pl- playing wildly different totally you know roles totally the funny thing about um his role in this was that he said that when he went in for this audition he felt like he bombed like it just did not work out and he left and he like walked out of the building and just like was not feeling cool about it and just happened that he said just I, I don't know if this was an exaggeration or not but just recently before like a few weeks before he and a friend had been coming up with these stoner characters that came up with a um like cooking show and had, you know had outfits like had really perfected this like stoner you know bro like type of type of uh character and he went out to his car got his outfit that he and his friend had been doing and went back into the audition after it was over in character and just like blew him away and was like, okay, you've got the part. You're right. It wasn't awesome when you were in here before, but now you nailed it. And the whole um, like kind of gender role reversal with Keith Coogan's older brother character with, with uh, Christina Applegate, um, you know, him being kind of like the stay at home dad and she's the working mom that was something too that we didn't really see in movies at this time, especially with kids that are this age. But um, their relationship is very, I mean, obviously brother and sister, but there is this like kind of weird, like disgruntled, like husband wife relationship that, that forms, but it's not like something weird. Um, it's just kind of like the natural evolution of what happens in the movie. And the, uh, you know, make mention of the younger sister, Daniel Harris, who, if you're a fan of horror movies, you've certainly seen her. You know who she is. A slew. Yeah, you know who she is. But, you know, had been in quite a few movies before Don't Tell Mom, like 
she was in Halloween four and five. Yeah. Marked for death, uh, last boy scout. So they had been, you know, everybody that was in this had been, you know, wasn't a movie where it was a lot of first time actors, like people. I think that's where you get some of the comfortability that you see on screen is the, you know, the level of acting for a movie like this is, is pretty high caliber. And the two younger siblings of of the family just to round it out. Christopher Pettier, who played Zach, who bought his girlfriend that Zsa Zsa diamond ring. God, I can't believe he did that. Oh, that was one that really ticked me off, too. But um, He also said that she was his moon goddess. Moon goddess. He was such a little dreamboat in this movie. And he did so much, so much throughout his career. He did pass away in 2000. Um, so that's kind of unexpected for such a young and talented actor, but um, I'm glad he's at least forever immortalized in this movie and gives a great performance in it. And Robert Gorman, who plays little Walter, the youngest, is <laughs> adorable. He's the one that falls off the roof and breaks his arm. He's the one I identify with the most, like when uh, Kenny uh, Keith Coogan says to, says to Walter, don't you ever go outside? He's like, no, no TV, <laughs> no prizes. <laughs> that would have been me. <laughs> yeah, same kid. here. <laughs> as a kid, this family's adorable, and um, for for not looking like any of them could be related somehow, I totally buy that they're all related too. <laughs> and the mom of all of these kids, uh, Conchetta Tomei, she's not on screen very long, but um, is a sweet mom. I'd be happy with her as a mama. And also, uh, man, there's so many people in this movie, really, that have, like, you recognize. But there's uh, Josh Charles, who plays the love interest to Christina Applegate's character. Um, I think he, you know, plays this really well. You know, he's just, like, the the typical nice guy, but, like, offers, you know, some insightful uh, information to her and, you know, talks about what he wants to do. And it gets her thinking about what she wants to do with her life. And he had kind of, like, a breakout hit with... Uh, Dead Poet Society right before this movie and has gone on to do a ton of movies. And then there's John Getz who plays the sleazy guy, Gus, who um, is dating the Rose character, but tries to um, get in with uh, Sue Ellen, Christine Applegate's character, and tries pretty aggressively several times to woo her. And uh, he, you know, he plays the, uh, he he's good at playing kind yeah. of like scumbaggy characters. Uh, <laughs> he, he is. He kind of plays like an, an equal scumbaggy character in The Fly, but uh, also great role in uh, Blood Simple as the guy that uh, Francis McDormand cheats on with. This is a strong cast. I mean, the credit to the casting director for really like, not, you know, no small role was not given a lot of thought to getting like some solid actors in the roles. Man, that's right. Sharon Bliley, who uh, was the casting director for this, did uh, Blue Velvet, Child's Play, Say Anything, Drugstore Cowboy, like was really someone that didn't believe in typecasting. So if someone had gotten used to playing one role, they wanted to play against that and did such a great job with this movie, whether it's, you know, Kathy, Kimmy Robertson, who helps out Sue Ellen with all those QED reports. Like, she's wonderful. I love her little angelic voice. I love her so much. Um, Jane Brooke, who's Carolyn, who plays kind of like the enemy and Personnel. the <laughs> Personnel. Like, is she hot because she's such a bitch or is it just because she's hot? I don't know. But I love Carolyn so much. She and her dimples. Um, <laughs> probably. And I, I, I can't not talk about it. The most obvious thing, you know, if you if you know this podcast, you know me, you know, I love me some X-Files. 
Um, David Duchovny is my male twin. This was one of his early speaking roles in, in a film he'd been in, ironically enough, in the background of Working Girl in a few scenes. He is Carolyn's boyfriend and um, the guy who keeps referring to Sue Ellen as the void in Rose's office. And Sharon Bliley really fought for David Duchovny for this role, too. The, they didn't want him for this movie and uh, she really went to bat for him, too. Went on to bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been in a couple couple hits. couple things. So like so many movies that go on to have cult status like this one, um, it's always the same story. They <laughs> did not do well at the box office. You know, this movie came out. And, Even though it tested well? Yeah, it tested well, but was I think it was like six in sixth place or fifth place when it opened yeah. the opening weekend at the box office opening against more adult fare or adult comedy like City Slickers or adult drama like Jungle Fever and just kind of got lost in the mix, but uh, did really gain, you know, was a hit and did gain popularity when it reached video cassette and cable. Yeah. And thankfully, when Outlaw Productions went to HBO, who was like producing at the time, um, producing films went to them for funding um this turned out to be a really good idea and they didn't even realize it because so it flops at the box office and hbo has money in this movie and has a vested interest so they just air the hell out of it on cable and i didn't see this in the theater i definitely saw it on hbo time and time again this is one that was just like on all like i was never a person that uh we never had cable when I was growing up, but friends or sure. other, you know, my aunt had <laughs> yeah. cable and this was one that was just like on in the background like this. They played this movie like at least like two or three times a day it, because it is such a palatable thing. I mean, uh, kids can watch it. Adults can watch it. And at the time too, HBO and they probably by this point had moved out of it a little bit, but we're still replaying the same movies over and over yeah. and over again. Um, so they didn't have 50 uh, TV shows back then. Yeah. They just had to play movies. Yeah. Um, so kind of the saving grace that this was an HBO film. Um, but man, a lot of working parts to making this movie, uh, work overall. Well, let's stop there for a moment. Uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on the babysitter movies. Um, like we said in the beginning, uh, we're not going to do our picks of the week, but here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. There's an old understanding out there in movie land that working with children and animals are just two of the most difficult things to do on film. Since movie making is normally very controlled, you can see why, you know, these particular leanings like this are maybe and sometimes unconsciously adhered to. 
And historically, Billy's not the most eager to make movies with kids involved. If you remember back in episode six, Weird Science, he gave quite a little bit of grief to a baby-faced pre-Gremlin star Zach Galligan when they made the Tom Schiller film Nothing Lasts Forever. Who is this kid? Has he even paid his dues? Though at the time, Billy's behavior was meant to motivate you know, Galligan in his performance, but it also wasn't too far off from how he felt. So when Billy signed on as the crotchety, grumpy bear next door neighbor turned babysitter in the 2014 movie St. Vincent, he turned out to be pretty surprised by his 12-year-old co-star Jaden Lieberher. Quoted by multiple sources, Billy once said, most kid actors should be taken out and shot, let's face it, and their parents too. Yet this kid, Jaden, was more professional than most of the actors I've worked with. He was completely prepared, and he has a wonderful mother and father who keep him normal. Of working with Billy, Jaden said that they'd rehearse a little together before every one of their scenes, which really, if you've seen this film, it's the majority. It's pretty much all of the movie. Jaden said of this whole experience, Bill would ask, do you know my lines? He wanted to make sure that I knew his lines too, making sure that I knew everything. I learned to listen up, relax a little bit before every scene, and just have fun. Jaden plays the son of his recently divorced mom, played by Melissa McCarthy, who's in a impressively rare form, I think, as the straight man character versus her usual scene-stealing comedic roles. Working long hours, mom needs a babysitter. Billy's a lonely, retired, but closetedly caring soul with a gambling problem who realizes he can make a quick buck by babysitting. The relationship that forms between Jaden and Billy's characters is so strangely believable, and I really attribute that to both actors being able to roll with the punches. And despite their 50-plus year age difference, they act as equals and really as buddies the whole movie. St. Vincent is touching without actively going for a easy emotional jab to crank out those tears. And for the movie's final scene, the crux of the entire film, Jaden has to give this lengthy speech about how Billy's Vincent character should be considered a modern day saint. It's extremely touching and feels like a moment that could actually happen. The speech, like the entire movie, isn't actively trying to turn up the tears. It feels earnest, but little 10 going on 11 year old Jaden felt a tad overwhelmed during this scene. So you know what? He and Bill did meditation before this entire scene. Apparently, they did this a few times during the making of the film, but this scene was particularly difficult. Jaden wanted it to be perfect, and Bill supported his mini co-star's dedication. He said that they just put their heads down, focused, and were just quiet together. And if you know how these two characters bond in the film, the fact that the actors had this close, off-screen bond is really endearing and adorable. And for real, with as much as I know about Billy Murray, I know that this had to make him appreciate his ever-so-young co-star. Billy said numerous times that Jaden was never a, quote, movie star brat, and that he was a wonderful actor and was always really respectful, to the point that it really surprised him. Director Cameron Crowe actually once asked Billy what he thought of Jaden, and at first, Bill said something like, I don't like kid actors, but quickly changed his tune after a short time of working with Jaden. He told Crow, this kid's good, and he'd welcome the opportunity to work with him again. And a couple days later, Cameron Crow hired him. That's saying a lot coming from a veteran actor like Billy, who's very set in his ways. Changing the dude's mind is pretty much impossible. 
That is unless you're earnest, dedicated, and a legit good person. So props to you, Jaden, for getting Billy's approval. That's not the easiest thing in the world to do. This Murray moment was another adventure into our whole dive into atypical babysitters for this episode. I really love the relationship that's formed between um, Vincent and Oliver in this movie. And if for nothing else, the time that they spend together is just as special as the bonding that happens in Adventures of Babysitting and the growth that happens in the characters and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. So check out St. Vincent. It's free actually right now on IMDb TV. It's well worth a watch. And I didn't even get to all the reasons why I like this movie, but it's definitely worth it. Man, I didn't know it's on free to stream right now i'm gonna check it out for sure i i saw it when it first came out and i don't for some reason it's just like kind of drawn the blank on that movie i don't know why yeah but uh i gotta revisit that i i did not see it when it came out and then just was like you know what i need to own that duh and man i don't know how many times i've seen it but i i really really like that movie quite a bit well thanks for that murray moment of course so before we uh close out this episode did you have any final thoughts on either movie or one movie in particular you know i love the montages in don't tell mom the babysitters that i feel like there are two and man yeah I, I love a good montage and this one nail this movie nails it and you would think for an 80s movie that there would be a montage in adventures in babysitting but there's not yeah it's kind of surprising really yeah it is but they didn't have a house that they had to clean up or uh <laughs> Anything that to transform. I do love that final yeah. cleaning scene that yeah. Elizabeth Shue does. It seems like it's sped up a little bit right at yeah. the end of the movie. I, I do like that. What about you, Justin? One thing that I noticed uh, upon the last rewatch I did is that uh, there's a there's a car theft in both movies. Oh my god! That results right. in the characters like you know having to figure out something else that they're gonna do. Yeah, when kind of everything falls apart, basically. You know, another thing, both of these movies deal with two girls that lose control of their situations and deal with it in drastically different ways, but with the same amount of courageousness, you know, and in some ways, well, in very obvious ways, trying to be adults and they spend the whole movie trying to like get forward and get past these obstacles. Um, when at the end of the movie, they just, you know, kind of just want to be kids again. Yeah. And, and, uh, both movies too, uh, the thing they have in common is they both have kind of contemporary soundtracks instead yeah. of like a heavy musical score. Though Ventures in Babysitting leans have more heavily toward like blues music, which mm-hmm. I'm not as into that soundtrack. But the Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, I'm re- I really dig the soundtrack to this is a lot, especially the the final song and credits. Yeah. The Adventures in Babysitting, I think, is still, even if blues isn't your jam, yeah, it's a, it's still really fun and does not waver. It's all throughout the movie and really does set a tone. But I, I got to tell you, the soundtrack for Don't Tell Mom has been stuck in my head for the last two weeks. It says a lot. It's good stuff. It is. Well, thank you guys so much for rejoining us for season three and for our extra special babysitters episode man this one's been a lot of fun i i love when we do these special episodes and two movies that i grew up with and i feel like a lot of people grew up with and so much fun and yeah, I, these were a lot of fun to watch like i know i kind of like want to watch them again now well uh next episode 
we're going to keep things going with uh, <laughs> teenage teenagers in peril. Angst. Yeah, and angst and rebellion. Going to uh, be doing a very, very dark, <laughs> dark and humorous movie, and that's uh, Todd Salanz's Welcome to the Dollhouse. I cannot wait. I've wanted to talk about this movie for a long time. I, same thing, too. <laughs> like, this is a movie that we've talked about doing. We're like, should we do it? it but I feel like, um, you know, I put a little post on Facebook not too long ago, and, you know, quite a few people, oh, yeah, this movie's good stuff. So Once you know Wiener Dog, yeah. you uh, never, never be able to forget her. Yeah. Well, thank you again for listening. Also, uh, please, if you haven't, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. You can uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can see old episodes there. You can also see them archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There we also have a merch store where we've got merchandise for the podcast and other goodies. Uh, All that money helps us to create a bigger and better podcast if you want to contact us for any reason whatsoever uh please reach us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com we always love hearing from people but until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm lindsey reaper thanks so much for listening thank you guys